<laughs> That's how the Big Bang Theory starts. If you've ever watched a popular sitcom uh, that actually made being geek, being a geek cool. I remember um, somebody came to me and they're like, hey, on the Big Bang Theory, they're always playing this board game. Do you know what board game it is? I'm like, yeah, I have it. Let me show you what it is. Like, that I was uh, I was the nerd from the Big Bang Theory long before it was cool. And uh, anyway, that's how that show opens up. And the Bible doesn't open up like that. It would be really helpful if it did. Like if it was like 14 million years ago the world started, and then we got to Abraham, and you can kind of figure out where you are from there. Or if it said 6,000 years ago the world started, and that leads up to Abraham. Um, that'd be really helpful to me. Like, I'm like, I wish it started that way. If it just walked us through, this is how it started, and this is where you are, and this is how we get to where you are. Um, but we're painfully aware that even though Genesis is written for us, it wasn't written to us. We're reading someone else's mail. It was written to ancient Israelites, and they weren't asking the questions we're asking today. They were asking different questions. And the text is answering those questions, not necessarily our questions. And so we have to approach the text that way. What's some of the questions you have about the origin of everything? Yeah, any questions about the origin of everything? I want to know all the questions. You have all the questions? Like how, why? Yeah, how, why? Why did God do it? How? I want to know how long ago it really was it? Like what's the time stamp? I want to know when it was. I want to know what it looked like. I want to know how he did it, like how molecules came together and atoms. And I want to hear it all. Um, when I was a kid, my parents started attending church. We weren't church going. We weren't a church going family. And my mom started going. And eventually, my dad. They ended up encountering Jesus. Fundamentally, changed their lives and our family. And after that, we started being church going people, Jesus following people. We had some neighbors who were Christians, and uh, we got to befriend them. And they said, "Hey." We have a vacation home in Florida. You thought just Philly people did that, right? No, even Tennessee people did that. And so they had a vacation home in Florida, and they invited us to vacation with them there. And so we got down there, and uh, it's the most centrally located place in Florida you can be. It's the farthest possible from every beach. It was next to a swamp. There was nothing to do in this little town. And uh, we sat around board, and finally they dragged out this 30-volume VHS set from this high school biology teacher who had gone to some church and done this presentation on why the Bible taught that the earth was young, maybe only four, five, six thousand years old. And above all, this VHS set told us that evolution was a lie of the devil, and dinosaur books were poisoning our kids' brains and turning them against God. I'm just going to say, I was wearing my dinosaur mask today. As a little boy, I was obsessed with dinosaurs. That's probably all little boys of a certain age are, you know? I thought dinosaurs were the coolest. I had all these dinosaur books. Then we have a picture of me with my stuffed dinosaurs. I had dinosaur everything. Dinosaur sheets, you know, dinosaur toys. I had all these dinosaur books. I've always loved books, so I'd have these huge thick books, and I would just pour over them. And um, I remember hearing this, and I had lots of questions about how dinosaurs fit into the narrative I heard in, uh, heard in church. Um, but I wasn't prepared for all my dinosaur knowledge about Jurassic periods and Triassic periods being called lies of the devil. And all of a sudden I had this crisis, right? Here's this guy telling me that, hey, you're a Jesus follower now. And so all these dinosaur books you have are full of lies. And I remember looking at them and I'm like drawing a line through things that they've written in the books because I watched this VHS set that set me straight. Now you're probably familiar with this tension between faith and science. 
right? Like it's hard to go very far in our world today without coming across this tension. Um, as some of you are exploring Christianity, if you're watching online or if you're here and you're like, okay, I'm trying to learn more about Christianity. What's this tension point between faith and science? Should there be a tension point? What does it look like? When I was being ordained and licensed as a Christian minister, as a pastor, I was getting the stamp so that I could officially do weddings and funerals, right? I was uh, in a room full of ministers who gathered together and peppered me with questions before officially signing off my, on my status as a legal Christian minister. One of the men in this group asked me, he said, do you take the Bible literally? And uh, I responded to him, I said, I take the Bible literally where I think it's being literal. And I look for clues if it's being figurative. And I used the example, I said, Jesus said that he was the door, but I've never worshiped the door because I recognize that he's being figurative. He's using a metaphor. And I said, I think sometimes the Bible uses metaphorical language and I need to be sensitive to that. Um, I don't know if that satisfied him. I don't know what his vote was. I walked out of the room and they took a vote and I ended up becoming an, a licensed and ordained minister. But his question lingered with me because I knew what he was really asking. What he was really asking was, do you promise to take Genesis 1 the same way that I do? That God created everything in six days out of nothing and that evolution is a lie of the devil. Now I've seen young people, I worked with college students in Tennessee before I came up here. I've seen young people over and over again. They're raising Christian families, they're raising Christian churches. They go away to college and all of a sudden they hear a very different story of the origin of the universe by good, well-meaning professors who are intelligent and well-reasoned, and all of a sudden they feel like they have a crisis, they have to choose between their faith or between science. They feel like they're forced to make a choice between what they believe and what is evident before them. The church has drawn a really hard line between faith and science, a line that I think honestly is unhelpful and unnecessary. Let's review a little bit of history real fast. Nicholas Copernicus, 1473 to 1543. Anybody know what Copernicus did? He did a lot of things. He has one big claim that made him famous. He revolutionized astronomy by claiming that the Earth wasn't the center of the universe, the sun was. Everything spins around the sun, not the Earth. You say, well, obviously, like everybody knows that, right? Not in his day. In his day, everybody thought all the planets and the sun revolved around Earth. Everything centered around us, right? And the reason, one of the reasons they thought this was because the Bible told them so. They, the church at the time cited a story of Joshua where the sun and moon stood still. And they said, look, they stopped rotating around us because we're the center. And Psalms 93 talks about the planet's revolution around the earth in the sky. It's using poetic language, but they took that to mean the earth is the center of everything. Um, the Catholic Church, as well as Protestants like John Calvin and Martin Luther, publicly refuted Copernicus and called him a heretic. Not because he disagreed with the Bible, but because he disagreed with their interpretation of the Bible. So today, there are roughly 2.5 billion Christians in the world. If you were to interview them, about a billion Christians believe in some form of theistic evolution. 1.5 billion believe in a more rapid creation and a young earth. So you might be saying, Alex, which one's right? Which one should I believe? Which one are you telling me to believe? I don't care. Like, that's a pretty even split, you know? You have a billion Christians out there who believe that Yep, evolution, somehow God had his hand on it. He was the guiding force all through it. God started the whole thing. Then you have 1.5 billion who's like, 
God spoke six days, it happened, young earth, that's the way to go. Biblically, as long as your theory of origin includes God, we're in line with the Bible. And so I know some young people who have stepped away from Christianity because they couldn't line it up with the strict, narrow view that they were taught. I think as long as your theory of origin includes God, you're in line with the Bible. In fact, the more scholars I read in preparation for this, the more they're like, you know what? This narrative really doesn't tell us a whole lot about how it happened. It just tells us who did it. Not how he did it, but who did it. This is a story about God and his involvement with humanity. Um, so you say, okay, Alex, if that's true, if biblically, as long as your origin of God, your origin of everything includes God, you're in line with the Bible. How did we get to where we are today where there's such tension between faith and science? Like, how did that happen? Um, that's a longer, more complicated story, but I'm going to call out three American dates from the 20th century. 1917, Schofield Bible was published. 1925, the Scopes Monkey Trial, and 1961 was a book called The Genesis Flood. Just real quickly, Schofield Bible was published in 1917. This was the first Bible since the um, 1500s that included a commentary in the text with the Bible. You've probably seen a study Bible. Maybe you have a study Bible at home. This was a new idea in 1917. The only time it had been done was hundreds of years before, and it held to a very simple unsystematic view of scripture. Schofield brought a lot of his own thoughts and ideas into the text. And for the first time, people began to hold Schofield's ideas, well, they're right there next to the biblical passage, right? So they must be like comparable. I mean, Schofield said it, and so it's right there next to my Bible. And so after reading their Bible, they're looking over and they're seeing what Schofield says, and they're taking what Schofield says as an authority Maybe not equal with scripture, but it's right there. And so you have a whole generation of people who begin to think like Schofield and accept Schofield's view and take on scripture. There's always been commentaries, people saying, here's what I think God was saying in this passage. But this was 1917, the first time we really had a mass-produced Bible that had commentary right there next to it. And people were like, I guess that's what it means. You know, the commentary is right there. Um, especially after World War II, Millions upon millions of copies of the Schofield Bible were published. It became like the Bible in churches and pastors were using and teaching from. And we have all kinds of little things in American Christianity today that trickle back to the Schofield Bible commentary. 1925 was the Scopes Monkey Trial. When I lived in Tennessee, I lived about 15 minutes from a little town called Dayton, Tennessee. Nothing happened in Dayton except the Scopes Monkey Trial. In 1925, there was a substitute teacher in a public school in Tennessee. It was illegal to teach evolution, and he taught evolution. But it was all staged so that they could have this big court case, and they put it on the radio, and they brought in the best debaters on the evolution side and the best debaters on the creationist side, and it was this radio um, uh, courtroom. It was a radio broadcast courtroom session over this topic. And all of a sudden, the whole world, or at least all of America, suddenly said, oh, this thing that I've never thought about or cared about, all of a sudden I'm hearing two sides of it, and I'm having to choose a side. And so all of a sudden it was, okay, well, if I'm a creationist, I'm against this. If I'm an evolutionist, I'm against this. And began, people began to choose sides. And they began to use the arguments used in this radio broadcast in their everyday language from everyday 1961, there was a book called The Genesis Flood that was published, and it said the earth is very young. It's the only way to read the Bible. Um, if you look at ancient Christianity, a lot of people just assume 
This thing happened a long, long time ago, and the, this uh, records really ancient things and the world's really old. But the Genesis flood came out in 1961 and said, the only way to read the Bible is that it's a young earth. And he took the, um, he added up the generations that are listed in Genesis from Adam to Abraham. And he said, look, that looks like it's about this many thousand years. And then you add 2,000 years uh, between Abraham and Jesus, and then 2,000 years between us, and you get six to eight thousand years, and that's how long the earth is. Um, and then those VHS tapes I watched really just took the Genesis flood and turned it into an interactive VHS uh, presentation. So you say, Alex, okay, why are you dragging out this long introduction? Because I want it to be clear that Genesis 1 doesn't tell us how the world started, it simply tells us who started it. And for thousands of years in the Christian church, this wasn't a big deal. It's only in the, 19, uh, the 1900s here, the 20th century in America, that we really began to draw these really hard lines between faith and science that ancient Christianity just wasn't that worried about. If you pull some verses out of the larger story that the, that the book is trying to tell us, you can defend a young earth view of the world. If you pull some verses out of the larger story it's trying to tell you, you can defend an old earth view of the world. But as you read more and more scholars, Genesis 1 is obviously not answering the questions that we're asking. How old is the world? Is evolution true? They have no concept for these things. Genesis 1 is answering questions the Israelites who just left Egypt had about who they were and where they came from. It is not answering the modern questions we have. And that can be frustrating for us because we want it to. And we can try to force it to, but I don't think that's helpful so let's take a look at the creation narrative and see what it does tell us about God starting everything. Verse 2, Genesis 1, verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, there was morning, one day. And then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse sky, evening came, and then morning, the second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the water he called sea. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so, and the earth produced vegetation, and seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit and seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the third day. And then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. There will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so, God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. And God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, and the fourth day. And then God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. 
So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He created every winged creature according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the water of the sea, let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came, and then morning, the fifth day. And then God said, Let the earth produce wild produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl, and wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. All right. Any repetition you spot in there? What's a repetition we saw? What's something that repeated itself? God said it was good. Yeah, what else? Evening, morning, one day. Yeah. Notice, first of all, let's look back at this in verse 2. It says the world is void and empty. This isn't the Hebrew word for nothingness. Like, that would be very convenient if it was like there was just nothing and then he created this thing. Uh, another way of saying this is the world was wild and waste, as one Hebrew scholar put it. The world was wild and waste. Now, some people have theorized that the world existed a long time before this, and that there were battles between good and evil, between God and the forces of the devil. Um, there's a book called The Letters of J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, where he people asked him questions and he responded to their letters. One of the questions was like, where is Middle-earth? Where does Lord of the Rings take place? Um, and he said, it takes place on Earth. I call it Middle-earth because people used to think Earth was the middle of the universe. Uh, and he says all these stories are the stories of the battles that take place before the story of mankind. So essentially, Tolkien thought of the Lord of the Rings as these battles between good and evil that took place before the first pages of Genesis. Some people think that. Um, there's really no way to know that for sure. Next, we see God hovering over the waters. So one of the first things we have to establish is, okay, if God's creating everything, where are these waters from? Right? Like, what are these waters? What is he talking about? So we have to establish how the ancient ancient Israelites viewed the cosmos. How they, what their cosmology of existence and reality looked like. How did they see the world and how it fit into reality? I have a graph here. Um, this is how ancient Israelites viewed the world. Super scientific. Actually, it's not scientific at all. Um, so they thought that there was water up in the sky. And sometimes that water leaks through, right? Rain. Um, and that is came through floodgates. If you read some of the Psalms, they're like, you open your floodgates and snow comes. You open your floodgates and the rains come. And they also thought there was water below because sometimes when you dug down in the ground, what happened? Water came up. You could have wells. I mean, it makes sense if you had a simple view of the universe. Um, and so when you're reading Genesis 1, think back to what he says. It says, God was hovering over these waters. And then he made an expanse. He made like this little pocket. And then he pushed the waters to the side. It's like, it reads like you have an ancient Israelite cosmology. It doesn't read like a modern cosmology. There, there's these passages in scripture where it talks about the pillars of the earth. That the mountains stretch up to the heavens and kind of hold up the sky. We know that's not true. Like the sky isn't held out by the tallest mountains, right? And we realize there's all these columns that reach down into the water to hold up the land. That's not how our world works. At the center of our world is lava. It's a uh, molten. Uh, but this is how they viewed the world. Now, 
why didn't God, if God is God, and he knows everything, why didn't he say, Moses, as you're writing this down, I need to update a couple things about your thinking about the world. The world is round. It's a globe. We revolve around the sun. We don't revolve around the earth. There's not pillars going up to hold up the sky. I don't have this huge pocket of water up in the sky that's above you. Like, you're not existing inside a water bubble. That's not what the world looks like. Why didn't God say those things? Why didn't he say, everything you think about how the world works is wrong and teach them the right science? Well, I think if he did that, that's a very different book than what God wanted to write right here, right? That's a scientific textbook. He could spend years and years, and honestly, all he probably would have done is blow Moses' mind, and Moses would have been more confused than anything else. They never would have got to what he really wants to be about. He wants to talk about who he is and how much he loves humans and how he wants to reunite heaven and earth. God likes humans to find out. He likes us to discover. There were things at the beginning of everything that he could have told Adam and Eve, but he let them discover and learn on their own. Isn't that better? I loved a good professor who let me find out on my own, who let me discover. And a lot of times I trusted it more because I had discovered it myself than if someone had just told me. I think God hates to ruin the surprise. I think as technologically and scientifically advanced as we are today, there's some things God knows about reality that we don't know yet. And as God told us, it would blow our brains. And I think if he had told Moses, hey, your view of the universe is too simple, it would have blown his brain. Instead, God let him work within the confines of how he understood the universe. If God had spent his time with Moses correcting all his scientific misunderstandings, the entire Bible would never get to the story God really wants to tell. Now, let's look at another detail I want to pull out here. Um, Matt, you mentioned it. Evening and morning, one day. Who counts days like that? Right? That's not what we say, right? Do you ever say, it was an evening and a morning, one day? No. I say, it was morning and it was evening. I go to bed. That was a day, right? That's how we count days. The Jews don't, don't count days like that. For them, days start at the evening, not at the morning. I always think a new day, morning time, right? No, that's not how the Jewish people work. This is just a subtle reminder. This isn't written to us. It's written to Jewish people. When does Sabbath, the holy day uh, where they rest each week, start for the Jews? Sundown on Friday. Because the day starts at the evening, not in the morning. That's a weird way of thinking about it. But this is obviously not written to us. It's written to Jewish people. And so he's saying the start of the day is in the evening. Now, this is really beautiful, and we're going to get to why this is such a beautiful thing as we talk about God resting on the seventh day. But essentially, the starting point for the Jewish people is not waking up and saying, i got to work, i got to do things. The starting point of the day is resting. It's the end of the day is their beginning. They start with resting and refreshing before they go in. Day. It's really beautiful how God's outlined, uh, outlined it, and we'll talk about it when we get there. Um, I think there's stuff for us in this text, but we have to read it on their terms. This was for them, written to them, but also there's stuff for us. Now let's look at God's goal here. Why is he creating in verse 11 and verse 22? He kind of clues us in. In verse 11, he says, let the earth produce vegetation, and let these trees and these fruit trees and these plants bear fruit and make more of their kind 
And then in verse 22, he says, he blesses the world, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters of the sea, fill the skies of the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. That's God's goal here. He's like, I'm creating beautiful things, and I want them to spread in our world. Spread beauty and order throughout the wilds and waste. It says God's hovering over the waters, and the world is wild and waste. It's formless and empty. And he starts bringing order to the chaos. He starts bringing order and beauty into the wild and the waste. And what mission does he give all this stuff that he's creating? He says, I wanted to make more beauty, more order, more good in all the chaos, to flourish. Creation exists to be beauty and the chaos and to spread beauty and the chaos. Or we might say it like this, you and I exist to be good and to spread good. That's why God created. He created beautiful, wonderful things. And he says, I want them to spread and make more beautiful and wonderful. Now, there's a reoccurring motif here, um, Michelle, you mentioned it, where he says, it is good. Over and over again, he creates something, he looks at it, and he says, it is good. Now, I usually use the term good or bad to describe morality, right? Like, that behavior was good, that behavior was bad. Am I a good person or am I a bad person, right? That's usually how I think about the term. Notice how God is using the term here. Good means it is ordered and beautiful. It's not chaotic and disordered. It's not wild and waste. Now it has a purpose. Now it's something beautiful. It's something that's been established and put together. It's designed. I love this clip from the TV show The Chosen, which if you haven't seen the show, it's an awesome show about Jesus. Kind of fills in some extra biblical gaps, but it's really cool. Let's just watch this clip real quick. There are times when I think I call something a loss, 
And God actually calls it a success, a victory, a game. There's a time when I want to put it down in the L column. And I was like, yeah, we, we lost that one. That was not where we needed to be. And God says, I said that was a win. Like, you can't see it, but if you had my eyes, I would say that was good. My natural tendency is to always see the bad and miss the good, see the chaos, and miss the beauty that God is creating in the midst of chaos. I need God's eyes to help me see the world, to see my life the way that he does. I think the Bible tells a unified story that leads to Jesus, and Jesus was nailed to a cross to be declared king of the world. That's not usually how you get declared king, right? You sit on a throne, you take a crown, but he took a crown of thorns that was nailed to a cross. People looked at the cross and they saw a loss, a defeat, an end, but God saw a win, a victory over sin and death, and a new beginning, a new creation, a new beauty in the midst of brokenness, a new beauty, a new order in the midst of the wild and waste. And I think Jesus can take your hurt, your pain, your regret, he can take your wild and your wasteful years and turn them into something beautiful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for coming. And you didn't come and conquer, but you came and laid down your life so that we could know you and be with you and be like you. God, I pray that as we think through the origins of the world, that we realize the most important thing is not what happened however long ago, but what's happening right now in us as we decide either to become followers, apprentices, students of Jesus' way of life, or as we decide, you know what, I've got this thing on my own. Like, I can figure out how to be beauty in the midst of brokenness on my own. I don't need him. I don't need his model of life. I don't need his teachings or his presence or his spirit. God, I believe that you're creating a new humanity, a humanity that lives and loves like you, and I want to be a part of that. And God, I pray if there's anyone watching who's been wrestling between the tension between faith and science, that you'll reassure them that as a student of yours, it doesn't matter what you think happened a long time ago or a short time ago, it's about what you do with your teachings right now. You said, if you love me, live out what I taught. Lord, help us to love you and live it out. 